wondering what you want to be when you grow up? Have you wondered how to get into a certain line of work and never known where to start? My name is John Manigon. I'm a career fly-in, fly-out worker, working as an electrical instrumentation technician in all aspects of heavy industry, including mining and oil and gas, in Australia and abroad. Given my limited exposure to other industries, I've always wondered what exactly do people do when they go to work. Tune in as we discuss from the mundane to the mind-blowing, and everywhere in between, where we garner insight from real industry professionals living the job. What better place to go for first-hand career advice? So if you're a school leaver or a concerned parent of a school leaver looking for some direction, or perhaps you're having a midlife crisis and looking for a career change, you've come to the right place. Welcome, classmates, to the working class. G'day classmates, today I'm talking to Andy Hall, listening to hear how this country boy, after initially pursuing a science degree, led to a nomadic lifestyle and now a career in remedial massage. Andy talks about his enjoyment of theatre and the spiritual aspects and personal connections made through massage. Welcome to the podcast, Andy Hall. Good Thanks to see up. you, mate. Good to see you too. Fresh off, um, fresh off the golf, link, golf links. Yeah, that's right. Round of golf <laughs> this morning. That's good. And that, um, I guess we'll talk about this later. But um, that's something you do every Wednesday. Yeah, generally, I try to get around every week. So your job um, allows you to have some downtime. Uh, it's good to be the boss sometimes. <laughs> And so what is it, just for the listeners, what is it um, that you do, Andy? Uh, I'm a remedial massage therapist and part owner of a physiotherapy business. Okay. And so what would you say, how much time would you, I guess, spend between being a massage therapist and a physio? Like is there... Um, oh, I'm not a physio as such, but... Oh, uh, you, you own the practice. Yeah, that's right. right. So, uh, so I do about 22 to 25 hours of massage business through the week which is usually around 21 or 22 actual uh one hour massages right and uh nominally i do 11 hours of week administration for the physiotherapy side of things but it's usually a fair bit more than that right would you say that's a good balance between because you know i do a lot of these things and a lot of people say that you know their passion or what what they actually enjoy to do a job is often taken up in administration tasks would would you say that you've got a good balance or you've got a good handle on that i think it's a pretty good balance years ago i was working monday to saturday and treating up to about 39 patients a week Mm. Uh, and while i really love the massage side of things Mm -hmm. it's also very taxing to be seeing that many patients a week. So to have a slightly different emphasis by doing the administrative side of the physio business allows me a bit of a break from uh, just the hands-on treatment and the energy that's involved in in putting through uh, that many treatments a week. Yeah, uh, I guess that was going to be one of my questions. Like, it, it, I'm guessing it's quite taxing. Like... Um it can it's be. It's hard work. It's, physically, it's not that bad. I mean, I've spent a lot of time through my life doing a lot more physical jobs. 
and uh, you know people think that massage is really hard to do and I suppose because I tend to use a fair bit of pressure people mm. think that it, that involves a lot of strength but realistically I weigh nearly 100 kilos and a lot of what I do is just leaning on people just in lean. the right direction <laughs> so it's it's not that physically taxing it can be a bit more mentally draining or um, spiritually draining I suppose sometimes and that depends to an extent on the patient and their needs sometimes people have a more uh, psychological kind of a bent behind what they're looking for in terms of the treatment Mm. and um, I suppose anytime you're working on people's muscles you're working on the reasons that their muscles are tight sometimes that's physical sometimes it's emotional so that can lead to it being a little bit more taxing and some people are a little bit more difficult. Right. That's in any sort of walk of life, I suppose. And the more difficult people uh, can take a little bit more out of you. What um, what do you mean by that? What what makes someone more difficult than somebody else? There are some patients that I have learned over the years not to say "How are you" mm. when they come in the clinic. Because you know you're always going to get a negative response. Uh, right. So they people have that negativity to them. And, and you've either got to try and avoid them altogether right. or avoid leading questions that are going to provoke a, a, a negative answer. Yeah, but surely by asking that question, you're genuinely trying to figure out where somebody's at um is it is it a way of getting feedback yourself to find out um why that person's there to see you or is it just a nicety i often ask the question twice (laughs) so when i first come out to to the waiting room i'll I'll come and say hi john how are you today (laughs) and you say oh great thanks then you come in you sit down and say right so how are you what's actually going on with your body (laughs) Um, so it's the same question, but it means two different things. Mm. Um, but for the most part, you know, when you ask somebody, how are you? They say, oh, I'm fine, thanks. Or I'm, I'm well or not bad. Yeah. Uh, and I always think, oh, what's stopping you from being really well? Right. Some people, when you ask them, how are you? Oh, everything's terrible. Right. You know, <laughs> life is awful and people are just mean and nasty mm. and you know, I had such trouble getting here today. And I really like to try and look at the positive side of life. And I think it's important to choose to look at what things you've got to be grateful for and choose to look at the things that you've got to be happy about Mm. rather than anybody can think about negative things in their life. Realistically, we live in Cairns. Mm -hmm. It's a tropical paradise. How bad can it get? Right. And yeah, playing golf on a Wednesday that's, well, and the know, weather's feel, awesome at the moment. That's right. I feel absolutely <laughs> blessed to have a life yeah. where I can choose to go and play a round of golf on a Wednesday morning. Yeah. Not a lot of people in the world can. Yeah. I've, um, you know, I'm, I've dabbled in massage myself. Like, I'm, I don't, I've never done it as a profession, you know. But um, you mentioned a spiritual aspect. How important do you think that is? It's a funny thing because when I first started out on my massage career, I had every intention of going into it and just focusing on the physical side of Mm. things. You know, I 
I thought that people who put a lot of emphasis on spirituality or energy work through massage it was a bit of sort of la la mm. um, and I didn't really put hold any uh, uh, I didn't really think there was any truth behind it mm. um, but you just can't avoid some element of spirituality or energy within your massage i don't focus on it mm. um, i have many people in the industry that i work with who do work on much more of an energetic sort of a level and i don't really fully understand exactly what they do or how they perceive what they're doing but you can't avoid some sort of an energetic involvement in your massage um, even down to the extent that when I finish treating a particular patient, I have a little routine that I go through to separate my energy from the person who's been on the table. Even though, as you know, having been a patient of mine, mm. that the work that I do really is quite physical and yeah. I do very much focus on the remedial side of massage in terms of fixing what's physically wrong with people you end up talking with people on the table and people mm. do tell you about what's going on in their lives, where their stresses come from, whether that's physical, emotional, financial, mm -hmm. all of those sorts of things. And there are times when I'm doing a massage where I will be silent for some period of time. There's no verbal communication between myself and the person on the table. And a question will come unbidden to my mind. And I find myself speaking the question and while I'm speaking it, thinking to myself, you can't ask that. <laughs> That's very personal. <laughs> but when the question comes out, yeah, you'll hear, and then the person will just go, and you can feel their body just, their, their energy uh, sort of, the tension receding mm. as you're, speaking the question as you're receiving the answer i should say um and i don't know why those questions come to my mind mm. they're not necessarily something that's directly involved in any conversation we've had um so i don't know how to explain that other than to say there's some sort of energy involvement is there anything you do to kind of enhance this spiritual level like you you a yoga person are you no. someone who kind of i don't know practices other forms of meditation or i have meditated through my life it's not a feature of what i do at the moment mm -hmm. uh, there are i suppose periods that i go through where i'm thinking more along those lines but i don't practice any sort of spirituality on a regular basis mm. do you care to talk about your ritual that you just mentioned that when somebody oh, okay. walks out of the room uh, it's not even when they walk out of the room it's actually when i f physically uh end the massage mm. um so typically i'll end a massage with a patient lying face up for me that just seems a better way to end a massage and i think mm. most massage therapists do yeah um and so when i uh finish the last touches that i do on a person on a massage uh, I imagine a column of white light coming from the sky down through me and my patient. Um, I 
wash my hands uh, or, or wave my hands, I suppose, mm. from the patient's head towards their, their feet. And mm. I imagine uh, the white light or energy, whatever it is, um, coming down from above, uh, washing away any remaining stagnant energy, blocked energy, negative energy, however you want to think about it. Mm. Uh, and, and I send that out the window, then I create a separation between the white light coming down on me and the white light going down through my patient. So there is a separation of my energy from theirs. Then I go and wash my hands in cold water from the elbows down to my hands. And that's a, a separation of the energy that I've been sharing with the person who's on the table. Hmm. Um, so we can then have a conversation, but it's a different level of contact. Wow. And how long have you been, you know, this particular ritual, if you will, how, how long have you um, been doing this for? Uh, since I started massage. So I, I got my accreditation for massage in, I think, April 1998. So mm -hmm. 23 years at least. Wow. And it's something that just came to you naturally. Yeah? Or something that you thought you felt like you needed to do? It was part of our training to make sure that you don't retain any of that energy. And I know that there have been times, particularly when I'm really busy, I was doing seven treatments a day for a long period of time. That That's seven, seven a day, much. Monday to Friday and four on Saturday. Sometimes I think I just got a little bit slack um, about maintaining that sort of energy break from my patients mm. and I'd go home and think I've got a headache mm. how did I get a headache I don't really get headaches and I'd realize it's the same headache that somebody I treated that day had and as oh, soon wow. as I realized that I think this is not my headache yeah <laughs> and I can make it go away <laughs> whose headache is <laughs> <Yeah>. this <laughs> uh, well I find that yeah. fascinating yeah and, and look as I said that it comes from somebody who you know my background is very much uh, I come. I'm a farmer's son, um, and I've worked in all sorts of uh, physical and and very uh, left brain kind of um, workplaces all the way through my work career. And building building fences and fixing fixing tractors. Yeah, and stuff yeah, like that. and uh, yeah, I, I've done a lot of uh, fruit picking, and I worked in live theatre in stage and production management for a long period of time. Um, I feel this is a good time to go back back okay. to the beginning. Where 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 did you grow up, Andy? Well, look, I had a pretty good mix of urban and rural in my background. Mm. Um, we lived in a suburb in what was then outer Melbourne. When okay. I grew up in Blackburn, yep. we had um, paddocks around the corner from us, but you know it was largely an urban existence. We've always had friends who've had a farm that we've spent a lot of time on. And then when I was 10, my parents bought a farm. And when I was 11, we moved on to the farm. Hmm. So and how did you feel about that at the time? I guess it as a 10-year-old, it would be pretty exciting, I would have thought. It wasn't really all that exciting because I'd spent quite a lot of time on farms in, much in the same sort of region. Yeah. Um, probably the biggest thing to me was that it meant it was much harder for me to play sport. Which is important. Always has been for me. <laughs> I've always loved playing sport. And, you know, as a kid, I grew up on Aussie rules, footy and cricket. 
Right. And, uh, you know, at the end of every cricket season, oh, I'm not going to play footy this year. I'm just going to concentrate on cricket all year. Yeah. And practice my batting and bowling all the way through the year. And then toward the end of the footy season, I'd be thinking, I'm not going to play cricket this year. I'm just going to focus on footy <laughs> through the cricket season. And just for the listeners, Andy's, what are you, six feet tall, six foot four, maybe? Yeah, a bit above. Oh, wow. Really? Six, so, six. I mean, having a frame like that would lend yourself to, um, AFL, basketball, tennis, all all kinds of sports. Yeah, I've played all of those sports. I played a few sports while I was at school. I rode for a little bit, uh, yeah, swam right. a little bit. Yeah, okay. Basketball and golf are my two current loves, but I did play Aussie rules and cricket quite wow. a bit and tennis a bit while I was at school. <laughs> so you moved to the farm and you couldn't play as much sport as you wanted. Yeah. Um, so, you know... Dad being, well, what did you farm on the farm? We had sheep, merino sheep. Okay. And did, you know, did they steer you any particular direction as a kid? Like, um, you're going to take over the farm no. or, you know, you've got to go to university and be a lawyer or... No, nothing along those real? sorts of lines. Yeah. I think my dad's advice from when I was young was, it doesn't matter what you choose to do, be successful at it. Mm. Um, I think in a lot of regards, I, I haven't fully <laughs> fulfilled his wishes in that regard, but... Uh, I don't know. I mean, you're a business owner and you, oh, yeah. and you work and you play golf on Wednesdays. Yes, yeah, so there you go. Sounds quite successful to yeah, me. thank you. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so growing up, so I'm guessing you uh, went to boarding school or something like I that? I did, yeah. I yeah. went to boarding school for four years at Scotch College in Melbourne, which was a, a huge shock to the system for me. How so, so in terms of uh, changes of lifestyle, that was much harder for me to cope with than mm. going to the country. Because I suppose I come from a fairly left-wing sort of a background um, and lower middle-class family, and Scotch is very much an upper middle class slash upper class mm. environment in school, gotcha. much more right wing. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of the boys there, uh, what they call 13 year boys. So that means they went through the primary school as well as the high school. At there. the same college. The same school. Yeah, wow. um, and for a certain percentage of those, uh, their fathers and their grandfathers and uncles would have mm. all been the same. Mm. So there's a, a very right. strong traditional element. And yeah. it's a good thing in terms yeah. of the school, but it's it's very different to what I was used to and what I'd been exposed to. Yeah, And the mindset of people who come from those sorts of backgrounds is really quite different to what I was used to. Mm, I bet. Mm. And um, you continued playing sport um, through college, I'm guessing. What, yeah, what, what I did. What was your game there? Uh, I played volleyball and basketball right. while I was at school at uh, Ormond College after school but at, at high school uh, at Ormond uh, sorry at uh, Scotch College um, I vacillated between various different sports I didn't really take up basketball till I was 15 right how to be tall yeah. I'm, I'm envious of you tall people <laughs> <laughs> it has benefits and disadvantages <laughs> and um, you mentioned that you um, currently you're a singer and you dabbled in some theatre, is that yeah, right? Yeah, I, I worked in live theatre for about five or six years after leaving school. Oh, after school. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, yeah, so you finished high school and so what, what happened after that? 
I was enrolled at Melbourne University in a science degree. Okay. I never really had much interest in finishing the science degree. I didn't have a vocational reason for doing it. But going through the school that I went to, mm. they very much groom you for completing your HSC, as it was called in those days, and moving on to a university degree. Unfortunately for myself and for quite a lot of other people who went through that school, who did well enough at school to go to university, they got to university and found that the means of learning that's required is totally different to the means of learning that we had at Scotch, which was very much aimed at getting you through the HSC. Mm. Um, and so, uh, and going from the four years in the boarding house where there wasn't a lot of freedom to a college environment where there was a huge amount of freedom and nobody cared if I didn't go to university. There were girls, right. alcohol. And there wasn't, there wasn't, um, it was an all-male school you went to, Scotch College. Scotch was all-male. So, yeah. And so it kind of um, set you up for fail, didn't it? It did. <laughs> I mean, with, you know, and with that very structured learning environment and I'm guessing you probably had tutors um, at night time or whatever after school when we you had needed prep some... after school so you were forced to sit at your desk for two hours every evening yeah what you did with that time was ideally that you were studying but right. uh, you know difficult to keep your eye on 70 kids all the time yeah and I, I guess the school as a whole met their requirements in that you know, they had to meet certain targets or goals and get a certain number of students um, through the HSC. HSC. Well, that's right. Uh, the high school certificate at the time was mm. what the, it was pretty much the only way to successfully complete school. Mm. And as you're probably well aware, schools are at least as much a business as they are anything else. That's right. And Scotch's. Uh, one of Scotch's platforms for their marketing was the fact that 98% of their students pass the HSC. Yeah. What they don't tell you is that as many as 30% of the fifth formers or year 11s are held back mm. because the school doesn't think that they're ready to complete their they HSC. They haven't met their requirement, yeah. Um, but uh, so as a marketing tool, you know, to be able to say 98% of our students pass the HSC was obviously a big thing for them. Yeah. I think that's changed quite a bit yeah, I think it's ha it has to. I mean, like, it's all well and good to create this environment and create these, you know, 98% kind of numbers. But if you're setting people out to the world after that without the correct tools or the appropriate tools yeah. to continue on with that. And um, I really do think that that particular school, and I'm sure a lot of schools have changed their approach a lot in terms of learning now. Mm. I know the boarding environment's vastly different to what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that they have a much more holistic approach to their students now, and it's great that they've learned that sort of thing. But at that point in time, the school was really quite archaic. I don't know if you've come across any of the old British TV shows like um, Flashman or um, any of those sorts of things. A lot of them were set in the 18th or 19th century at boarding schools, and that's pretty much what Scotch was like right. in the 20th, late 20th century. <laughs> I'll have to look it up. Yeah. And so with a, with a science degree, um, that was at which Melbourne university? Melbourne University. Melbourne uh, yeah. Pretty prestigious university or difficult to get into, I'm guessing? Uh, not really for a science degree. The, the way that universities work, and certainly in those days, um, uh, it was more about 
the course that you were doing mm. uh, and then the university that you, that you wanted to do that course at. So the most difficult courses to get into were always medicine, vet, uh, law, mm-hmm. um, perhaps physiotherapy were also quite high up there in terms of the scores that you needed to achieve to get into those courses. Mm. Um, science was much more of a mid-range course and that sort of befitted the lack of uh, effort that I put into my sixth form year, unfortunately. It's, you wouldn't consider yourself a good student? I'm fairly intelligent, but no, not yeah. a dedicated student. You sound a lot like me. I, I, um, I got very mediocre results with very little effort, yeah. if, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so with a science degree, uh, like I never went to university, but my understanding was science degree, uh, not so much understanding, but in my head how it would work. It, te- it sounds like it might bridge you to go to something else. Like it gives you a good basis in the sciences but not necessarily an outcome at the end of it there are a lot of roles that are science specific so you think about pathology um uh, a lot of lab work in various different industries is very science based Hmm. um uh, a lot of people i suppose go through a science degree and become teachers um but I didn't have a career pathway in mind. It, right. was, it was just the course that I drifted into because what you did after school was go to mm. university. But I got to yeah. university, found all these freedoms. I found theatre, which was one of the really big things for me, and I, I almost instantly fell in love with it because it allowed me, with my left brain bent towards finding solutions to things, mm-hmm. um, to be able to be involved in a creative world where I don't have a great degree degree of uh, creativity myself. Naturally. I, I, yeah, I, yeah, I'm much better at helping other people to express theirs. So, mm. so that worked out really well for me. And in what capacity were you in the theatre? I started off uh, just doing anything backstage that was available to help. I did quite a bit of work on the um, uh, electrical side of things, so mostly in lighting and in theatre and a little bit of sound uh, as I moved toward rock and roll, but even then mostly the lighting side of things. Mm. Um, stage management, production management, um, lighting design, probably my one artistic outlet in the, in the theatre. Wow. And um, you said you moved towards rock and roll. I'm pretty keen, pretty keen to hear about that. <laughs> rock and roll was really an outcome that was derived from the fact that there wasn't a huge amount of theatre work around. Mm. So doing rock and roll, you know, doing lights and sound for a band at night time was just a way of putting a little bit of extra coin in my pocket, really. Wow. Mm. And what sort of music were you listening to back then? <laughs> Back in the late 80s and early 90s in Melbourne, uh, there was a very varied music scene. So um, there were a lot of um, pub rock bands. Mm -hmm. Um, Friends of mine had bands that I helped with occasionally. Um, And uh, then there were a lot of the bands around like uh, Mm -hmm. Frente, the clouds yeah that were kind of a more of a poppy mm-hmm. sort of a sound there wasn't really my scene but that's what was about so yeah you I took remember. the work that you could i remember the era yeah mm. so what happened 
after university? So you didn't didn't I didn't complete, complete my my science degree. Um, at the end of my second year, uh, one of my closest friends took his life, and that really threw me around. So I didn't go back after that. Um, I'd actually repeated first year because I had a back engineer stop me from actually sitting my exams at the end of first year. Mm. So I did uh, some second year and some first year subjects in my second year. Gotcha. Uh, then after Christo committed suicide, I didn't feel like going back to university the following year. So I took a year where um, I worked as much as I could. Um, he was someone you went to university with? He was one of my uni mates. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I went back again the year after that for a few months and I just thought, no, this is not for me. So I threw myself more wholeheartedly into theatre and all the associated bits and pieces that are that are involved with that. When you, like I said, scratching for any sort of job that's going around. So yeah. you'd spend some months of the year when there was a fringe festival, a Spoleto festival, or a comedy festival, working your ass off doing thirty-hour days, yeah. going from job to job to job, uh, and then you could go for a couple of weeks without a job. So during that period of time. Um, I remember one of the jobs that I had that I was terrible at was uh, going door to door selling um, mass produced art to people who were moving into new suburbs. Oh, you know, here's that some does paintings sound to put terrible. on the wall. <laughs> Just literally going and knock on people's doors yeah. and saying, Hi, do you want to buy some art? I've, I've done something similar when I lived, first moved to the UK. I came across this, I couldn't find a job when I initially got there. I didn't find a job in a bar like most people. and. I um, ended up selling dodgy box set CDs um, door to door and um, it's character building if nothing else, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think that was probably a phase of my life where it, I kind of made another jump in my self-possession, self-confidence. Uh, when I was at high school, I wasn't very self-confident. It was only towards the end of my high school career that I started to make the realisation that I didn't have to care what anybody else thought about me. Is that because you felt like you didn't feel in being, uh, fit in being a country boy moving to this mostly right-wing college? Uh, of Partly. Uh, the boarding house was mostly full of country kids anyway. Oh, of course. Because um, yeah. you would have had day, day students there as well, yeah? Yeah, the school was yeah. probably about... Uh, Two-thirds or more day students are about 200 odd, uh, yeah, 210 boarders. Mm. Um, so uh, it was mostly day students. We didn't really have a whole lot of interaction. Again, that was a cultural sort of a divide between the rurals, as we were called as the boarders, and yeah. the day goes, as they were called as oh. day students. <laughs> I've heard of this. I didn't go to boarding school, but I've, I've had friends in it. Yeah. And I hear similar stories from yeah, all yeah. There was well. a There was a quite a deep divide yeah. between the two. And again, toward the end of my high school career, I started to make friends with some of the boys that I had been in classes with for most of the time. And mm. those are the people that I'm closest to now. I hardly know anybody from the boarding house. Wow. Yeah. But some of those people were also theatre people, so yeah, so you we grew together pre- through yeah, that period common, of time as well. Common love, yeah. So after the university period of time, when things weren't working out for me there, yeah. as I said, I worked for a while in live theatre in Melbourne, mm-hmm. but I found that it was increasingly difficult to um, make a decent lifestyle out of it 
without mm. going to the larger mainstream sort of theatre, you know, your Phantom of the Opera and those sorts yes. of things. I did get offered a job by the Victorian State Opera, but it, it wasn't the sort of work that I wanted to do. It wasn't the sort of theatre that I wanted to be involved with. Did, and, um, sorry to interrupt, yeah? but did you um, have any formal or well qualification other than the experience you gained no. in this? And I'm guessing some of these bigger places probably want some formal calls yeah, from people so or it I, didn't exist at that time? No, 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 it existed. But I think the because I was in uh, the backstage side of things, there weren't really very good formal qualifications for that. Mm. I assume there probably are better qualifications now. And I remember the Victorian College for the Arts was one that did have uh, a degree that um, pertain to backstage work but for those of us who were working in live theatre mm. the um, certainly the, the students who were in their last few years of that sort of degree were really not very useful in the actual live yep. theatre production side Understood. of things that they needed to be coached into how to actually do things rather than just the theory behind so it. So your practical learning kind of far outweighed their Absolutely. theoretical knowledge. Absolutely. And, you know, to the extent where actors from Melbourne University who by necessity had been involved in some of the backstage stuff were often a lot more useful at a bump in or a bump out, which is setting up or, mm. or uh, removing all your stuff from the theatre at the end of the show mm. than the uh, VCA graduates at the time. <laughs> Yeah, and like you say, I think it. I think it's changed a lot. I did a podcast recently with a drummer who went to jazz school, and part of his, um, part of his training, they were kind of affiliated with this island where they used to ship in guys to play every other weekend. Right. Thing, you know, and so there was a lot of uh, practical component with sure. that, and I think a lot of places have recognised that it's yeah. not all book learning and the and you know the the quality that you get from actual on-the-job experience yeah. is, is... And I think that the way that those things work in tertiary education now really is that there is a huge practical component to mm. it. So at that point in time, as I said, I got offered a job by the Victorian State Opera, which was as a trainee assistant stage manager, which... You know, assistant stage manager is kind of the lowest rung you can have in terms of a backstage role. So to be a trainee assistant mm. um, is basically saying, you know, you're the shit kicker's shit kicker yeah. in this production. Um, <laughs> and I'd, I would, had at that point in time been working as a production manager for several years and I'd been involved in putting shows on in derelict buildings in the city that were huge um, uh, logistical nightmares to mm. uh, to put on yeah, and so yeah. to go you know basically to making coffee for the assistant stage manager was <laughs> not really very appealing to me so at that point in time um i was a bit disenfranchised with the with a life that i was leading mm. and um one of my mates from a couple of years previously uh came to visit and said mr hall you need to get out of Melbourne. I said, you know what, you're right. So a week later, we took off in the van that I owned and uh, went travelling. We ended up travelling together for about six months. I came back to Melbourne and went, you know what, I really can't be here. Really? And, and that was sort of the the origins of about five or six years just travelling around Australia and living out of the back of the van. Wow. Yeah. Just chasing surf? Are you a surf guy? No, no, no not a surfer. Um, I... 
I was really still quite sort of goalless at that point in time. Mm. So um, I was chasing experience. I really loved to travel. I've always really loved to travel. So I was looking for new places in Australia to visit. Um, I had to work, obviously, for periods of time. So what were you doing? What was what was the worst job you did while you were traveling around for worst five years? Job. Oh, you know, what What was some of the jobs? Oh, the majority of the work that I did during that period of time was fruit picking. Right. Um, it's hard work. Yeah. But I love fruit picking. You know, it's it's yeah. good, honest labor. You go out there, you earn money according to how hard you're prepared to work. Yeah. Um, and, and good kind of friendships are made that way. And yeah, that's right. And a laugh to be yeah. had. Oh, look, you know, <laughs> the number of fruit fights that I've had with people in the orchard. Uh, I had one of my... Uh, Nemesis was uh, uh, a guy, an ex-Navy guy who was driving the tractor on a pear orchard that I was working on. Right. And he was incredibly good at lobbing rotten pears across two rows of trees to land in the tree that I happened to be standing or, you know, on the top of a ladder in. Uh, so, so you had a talent then. He was, oh, he was brilliant at throwing those rotten pears. But, uh, you know, it's a talent in itself because essentially you've got uh, a bag that's... Um, a bit like a wet paper bag right. full of rotten fruit. And you've right, got to be right. able to get enough acceleration out of your hand to <laughs> lob it across a couple of rows, but without it exploding in your own hand as well. It is a talent. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there was huge amounts of fun to be had. I met some great people. Mm. Um, there's a lot of fruit picking that's done by international travelers, a lot of backpackers. Yep. So met people from a lot of different nationalities around the globe. Mm. Um, and... Uh, it was a fun way of life. You had the choice of whether you wanted to go and piss your money up against a wall on yeah. Friday or Saturday night at the yeah. local pub. But, um, you know, most Queensland towns have got the top, middle and bottom pub. And right. you went to the top <laughs> pub if you wanted to drink, the, the middle pub if you wanted to listen to the bands and the bottom pub if you wanted to have a fight. You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> Some variation there. And so um, how did that, how did you end up here? How did you get to Cairns? I came to Cairns to uh, stay for a couple of weeks with a friend that I'd been to a wedding with in Darwin. So the mate who got married in Darwin was one of our Melbourne University college mates. Mm -hmm. um, and we had a, a fairly wide circle of friends there and a bunch of us came together in Darwin for his wedding. And uh, one guy came from... Uh, Thailand, um, Bosch, who was the guy from uh, Cairns that I visited, obviously came across from Cairns. I'd been in southern Queensland picking fruit for a while. Another guy came up from Melbourne. Uh, we all got together, had this fantastic uh, wedding and a, a monumental wedding reception <laughs> uh, on a couple of acres property out at um, Howard Springs. Mm. Um, and... Uh, I was a bit sort of rootless. I'd sold the van that I'd been living in for about five years and uh, was looking for something new to do. I, I'd sold the van in part because I recognised that it was time for me to get off the road or the next thing I knew I was going to be 60, 70-year-old man with no friends and... With a really shitty old van. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think there's, there may have been upgrades to be had on the van along the way, but um, I, I didn't really want to end up being somebody who was not very uh, socially compatible uh, with other people, right. um, which is what I noticed that you know quite a few of the yeah. people who were fruit picking were like. So um, I had to get off the road. I wanted to visit Bosch in Cairns. Mm -hmm. um, 
So uh, I made my way from Darwin to Cairns after this monumental wedding reception, mm. uh, in part to recover from the wedding reception. Um, took about a week to get to Cairns and um, never got around to leaving. Yeah, still yeah. here. Mm. And so how did, you know, when did the massage journey start? I started massaging when I was about 11 or 12. And really? that was when we moved on to the farm. Not I'd always wanted to have a dog. And yeah. sheep or- <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> Kelpies. Um, I'd always wanted a dog and I wasn't allowed to have one in the suburbs. So when we moved on to the farm, I said, right, dad, now I get a dog. Right. And uh, so we had a next door neighbor. Uh, I wasn't at home at the time, but um, the next door neighbor uh, trotted down the driveway with uh, uh, his bitch at his heel and a, and a pup in his hands and mm. came up and introduced himself to dad and said, hi, I'm Dennis Nolan. I'm your neighbor over the back there. He said, if you're going to have a sheep farm, you're going to need a sheep dog. He's a dog. <laughs> That'll be $60, please. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a nice gift. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so dad had um, uh, been told that there were pups coming from somebody else that he knew that he was going to give me one of, but mm. uh, I don't think they made it. Um, past the bottom of the dam, um, they obviously weren't, didn't come out the way they were supposed to. And so uh, Dad presented this pup to me and said, "Here you go, you got a dog." So I had this sheep dog, and of course Kelpie's are naturally sheep dog, so I didn't really have to teach him much about how to yeah. do that. Um, I taught him all the basic commands, and he was my best friend. So we spent hours a day together, and I used name? to love to watch him running across the paddocks. His name is Matey. Matey. Matey, yeah. Of course. Um, I, couldn't, I couldn't think of a name, so Dad named him. Um, but uh, yeah, Matey was my best mate. And uh, yeah. I used to love to watch him running across the paddocks and see the muscles rippling under his skin. So when yeah. I was patting him, I just sort of felt the muscles and, uh, wow. you know, you could feel which ones were tight and which ones just they feel different. And he was really? pretty good at expressing whether what I was doing felt good or didn't feel good. So yeah. I learned from that. Didn't do anything with massage for many years after that. Did a little bit of massage through my theatre days just because you do. You know, mm. when you're working late at night with people, sometimes people need a bit of a stress release. Yeah. yeah. Uh, did a bit of massage through my fruit picking days because, again, you get people with lots of tired shoulders and sore backs. Mm. Um, and then in the latter days of fruit picking, I was hanging out with a bunch of Israeli guys and I was on the floor giving one of their guys a massage and saying, gee, guys, I've got to find something that I've got some sort of level of skill in that I can mm. do as a vocation. And I can't think of anything. They were standing around laughing with each other and pointing at me and, come on, guys, I'm serious here. And they said, Andy, you're already doing it, mate. <laughs> what? Said, massage. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. And it went so, from there. So how did, you know, what was your first step there then? Well, it was while I was in Cairns, um, I started thinking that I need to find a college to um, uh, to actually learn how to do this professionally. And mm. um, I came across a course that was in Cairns. Um, I looked it up, um, did a bit of research, and I thought, well, that seems to be able to provide me with the qualifications that I need to do the job. So I did the course. Long course or expensive course? or It took... Uh, about 18 months. Back in those days, there wasn't a standardized form of training for um, massage. It was mm-hmm. only around about 2000, 2001 that um, the, the standard hours came into being. And that's gradually increased over the years since then. Um, but basically, you needed a qualification that was recognized by one of the vast number of massage associations across the country. 
Mm. Um, and this one was. So I did it. Um, as I say, it took me about 18 months. Um, I already had a certain level of proficiency in terms of my natural ability to massage. And I suppose through the sciences that I'd done at school and at uni, um, I had a bit of a background behind the anatomy and the physiology. Mm. Um, so that side of things was pretty easy for me to um, to do. And uh, massage is something that I suppose I'm reasonably good at uh, <laughs> naturally. And, and so um, I continued with it, managed to make it uh, successful enough to earn a decent living from, and here I am. Mm. So you mentioned um, primarily you do remedial massage. Yeah. I do get a bit confused with all of the different types of massage. You know, you'll hear soft soft tissue, you'll hear Thai massage, you'll hear this and that. And How does uh, what you do diff- differ from other forms of massage, I guess? That's probably the million-dollar question as far right. as massage is concerned, and it's the hardest one to answer in a lot of ways because there are people across Cairns and across the state and across Australia that do remedial massage and mm. not many of them will do the same sort of thing. I focus on the remedial side of it so that providing a remedy. Basically, when somebody comes in with a problem, I look at trying to find a solution for it. There I go with my left brain solution mm. finding mm. Um, uh, way of being again. And um, so I've throughout my career um, for the last uh, 21 years, worked from within a physiotherapy clinic uh, and that's given me access to the brains of uh, a lot of physiotherapists and and principally Julie Fawkes is the practice principal at Proactive Physio Mm -hmm. Uh, and she aside from being my wife is also (laughs) an amazing physiotherapist Um, and so I've been lucky enough to pick up a lot in terms of uh, assessment and treatment techniques that allow me to do what I do and it's probably quite different to what a lot of people do. I know there's a lot of people that pretty much just stick to uh, a routine that they do for anybody that comes in mm. and that's and they great don't, if it's what their patients want. And they don't adapt to the needs of particular clients? They might adapt a little bit but right. they don't necessarily have um, training to be able to look after um as wide a range of conditions as, as I do and as I say, you know, that to my great advantage largely comes from the fact that I have a wealth of knowledge to be able to tap into mm. um, both in terms of Julie's knowledge and, and in terms of the plethora of physiotherapists that have worked at Proactive over that period of time. How, how did you meet Julie? I needed a physio. <laughs> <laughs> we have a mutual friend. Um, uh, Sonia was um, uh, supplying me with personal training and I was trading her for massage and I'd been looking for a physiotherapist and Sonia kept saying, hey, you've got to meet my mate Julie. She's amazing. She's absolutely amazing. And um, for various reasons, I didn't get around to meeting Julie and then rolled my ankle playing basketball, needed to see a physio, didn't have much dough. Sonia said, <laughs> Julie will trade you for a massage. Uh, so Julie was then placed in the position where she pretty much had to trade me a massage for a physio. Right. Um, I duly rocked up thinking I was 10 minutes early and actually being 20 minutes late for my appointment. <laughs> she treated me anyway. Um, I traded her for a massage. I'm sure I gave her a really bad massage the first time I saw her because I was so nervous. But um, yeah, so we became friends. Um, and uh, about um, 18 months after that, uh, I moved my massage practice in with the 
physio practice that she had going, which was then at the private hospital. Mm. And uh, about 11 months after that, we sort of looked at each other and went, hang on a minute, what's going on here? This might be a bit more than friendship. <laughs> Unreal. Yeah. I'm coming up on 19 stories. years of massages, of marriage this year. <laughs> well, congratulations. Thanks. Um, we spoke earlier about the spiritual aspect yeah. of, of um, massage. And you've been doing it for quite a while. So how has people's attitudes changed to a holistic medicine, do you think? Do you feel um, there's been kind of a paradigm shift with that? Or do you think it's it's always been the same and some people accept it and some people don't? I think it's probably more widely accepted. Um, I suppose I, I've always been aware of... Um, uh, people like Dorothy Hall, who's one of the doyens of um, the natural health industry in Australia um, mm. for a long period of time. And so it's always been something that's been uh, accepted within my family and the um, social environs that I've been living in. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, I see people on a regular basis from... Uh, all sorts of different walks of life. Um, and I suppose massage is something that's uh, probably more accepted than a lot of other types of therapies. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that these things have become more mainstream, but the, the interesting thing about that is that there's also been a pushback from the, the sort of, the, I suppose the far right, um, not necessarily right wing, but um, uh, the, the mainstream medical aspect has sort of pushed back a little bit in in terms of the fact that now the health funds won't pay for things like uh, acupuncture or mm. bone therapy or mm. quite a few other types of therapies like that um, what do you think that is uh i think it's financial more than anything else right um i think the government was put under pressure to um uh, to make a ruling on the on these sorts of things and mm. so they went about trying to establish a baseline of um, uh, evidence-based proof that various techniques were actually effective mm. um, and they put a line through what they thought was um, reasonably paid for and what wasn't. It's funny, I've, you know, I've had a number of um, encounters with holistic medicine that have really changed changed my life i i had problems I'll, I'll share one of my my stories here i had problems with my wrists at one stage where you know it was probably 15 years ago and i couldn't even do a push-up anymore and i i waited six months to see this wrist specialist surgeon and it cost me 250 dollars for him to talk to me for a minute and say i'll come back when you can't bear the pain anymore and i'll um i'll perform some surgery open. right yeah and then following that, I was a little bit, a little bit jaded by that, and so I, I went to acupuncture, and we've got a great acupuncturist in town here, and she said she had a look at my problem, and she said, two sessions, you'll be fixed, and sure enough, I was great. I went, you know, acupuncture for me is is amazing. Yeah. Um, do you ever see yourself kind of, um, you know, maybe getting into some dry needling? I'm not doing, not sure if you do dry needling. I don't do dry needling. Um, it's certainly an avenue that is uh, open for me to go down. Um, I think it would probably be a pretty good adjunct to what I do, but mm. I'm 
kind of busy enough doing and what I'm doing. And to, you're comfortable that's doing right. what you do. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there are other, as I said, working within the um, proactive physiotherapy environment, I know that there are people that are very good at dry needling that I can just say, look, you know, I think dry needling would be really good for you if uh, you know, you're plantar fasciitis or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, why don't you go and see Rejoice and get some dry needling done? Mm. Is there any more... Um any more talent you want to put in your quiver there or you're not you're not looking to extend i know we just mentioned dry needling but any yeah sure um i think probably the one thing that i'd really like to uh, add to my quiver as you said would be visceral release um and it's something that (laughs) so the viscera are the various organs of the body uh within the abdominal Uh, cavity mostly Mm. Um, and so uh, there are junctions between uh, say the stomach and the um, duodenum um, well the stomach and the jejunum then the jejunum and the duodenum Mm. these are all part of the small intestine Um, and uh, there are connections between those various organs and the um, and the uh, musculoskeletal section of the body Mm. Um, and so uh, the visceral release really looks at how uh, the tensions in those junctions can affect the body. Um, and we had a physio a few years ago by the name of Paul Roebuck, who was great at that sort of thing and um, you know, was able to do great work in terms of relieving people's thoracic pain by um, doing, I think, what he called a D2 release, which is, I think, re- releasing the... Um, the tissue at the bottom of the duodenum um, and I, I know of um, a few other people there's another massage therapist in Cairns by the name of Kevin English mm. who does uh, a lot of that sort of work um, and uh, I haven't seen Kevin for a treatment but um, you know I know a lot of people who say that he's fantastic so that's something that it's just another means of, uh, of being able to um, create relief for people so uh, I'd be fascinated to do that the, that- the introductory levels uh, like a four-day course down on the gold coast um and you know that's that's very much just the beginner's beginner's course so it's it's quite a world that does sound really interesting and Mm. i imagine it would help some singers right i mean you hear about that connection yeah that's right yeah yeah takes me to you singing mate (laughs) (laughs) you know that's something you do um, that you I, enjoy? I haven't actually been involved in singing this year, but the okay. singing that you refer to is with the Cannes Soul Song Choir. Right. Um, the choir director, Jack Larson, Jacqueline Larson, is absolutely amazing. And for many years, she's brought together uh, people, um, shower singers, basically. Uh, there are some very talented singers amongst the group and great musicians amongst the group. There mm-hmm. are also some very ordinary singers amongst the group. Uh, I won't name them. Don't know who they are. Uh, one of them used to love to say to me, um, uh, "People used people love to hear me sing tenor, tenor more miles away." So um, fair enough. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, Jacqueline's done an amazing job over the years in terms of just getting people together, um, you know, very ordinary people um, and creating amazing music um, that uh, can be heard. Uh, normally we do one concert at the end of the year. I think this year uh, it's the weekend of the 30th of October, mm. um, the Cairns concert. Um, Jacqueline's now also got 
acquire in Brisbane and I think she's got one started in Sydney as well. Wow. And she has a viral choir so you can get online and get involved with it as well. Check which is absolutely extraordinary. You should get Jacqueline in here if you can. She's oh, amazing. Oh, yeah, I'd love to talk yeah. to her. Um, she'd be great to talk to too. Um, so, yeah, I was involved with the uh, with a Soul Song Choir in 2019 and 2020. Uh, 2020 obviously being the blip of a year that it was. Yeah, um, wasn't uh, great. Yeah, uh, <laughs> choral music uh, took a huge dive in 2020 and that was what started the viral choir for Jack. Yeah. Um. A question that, for me, um, more than the listeners, um, I think a lot of people think with massage therapy that you're you're in there massaging um, supermodels all day. Um, <laughs> I know for a fact Are you a supermodel, John? <laughs> this is not true because occasionally um, I get a massage. And um, how do you deal with that? Like having to deal with, you know, I, I, I guess there's a real separation. It's your job, so you don't really think of it that way. But uh, I, I, that's, uh, I, I've never come across that before. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. What, a no, supermodel? A supermodel, <laughs> nor the expectation that that's what I do. Um, I think people Maybe it's just think, in my mind then. Pe- people generally think that um, uh, the majority of my work is probably with sports people. Mm, and over the mm. years, I've been lucky enough to work with um, sports people of various different. Um, uh, persuasions. I was involved in looking after the men's swimming team before the 2008 Beijing Games, the Olympic Games. Wow. Uh, so I looked after people like um, um, Grant Hackett, Kai oh. Hurst, um, Matt Target. Uh, Where Travis were you Nettabelt. based at that? At that, that was stage? here at, at, in Kansas. Um, yeah, well. in Kansas. Wow. Yeah. They they came up because the games were in Beijing. They wanted to get more of a tropical environment to um, so they were trying to acclimatize themselves. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, I understand the um, women were here as well. But I didn't see any of them mm. for that. But I've worked with the Wollongong Hawks basketball team um, and uh, a lot of swimmers, cyclists, triathletes mm. um, over the years. Did you get involved much with the um, most recent Cairns Ironman? No. Um, the, um, my triathlon involvement was really uh, generally much earlier in my career. I still have a, a handful of patients uh, who are kind of a holdover from those days. But I think um, it's uh, it's a good thing to do. It was a good thing to do for me early in my massage career. Mm. But uh, quite commonly, um, sports people, uh, and particularly triathletes, I found, were very keen to get their massages pre and post race mm. but not necessarily keen to shell out for money, uh, for money during the week when they had to actually pay for it right but you know I mean I, I did get a um, uh, enough of a client base from that um, to have word of mouth referral to other people to build a, a business and, and the triathlon was a big part of that mm. um, initial process but um uh, it's it's not a great avenue per se in terms yeah. of trying to build it. Do you get r- regulars? Like, you know, I wouldn't consider myself a regular. I come in when I can, but like someone who'd come to you weekly or even fortnightly. Yeah, or something like um, over the years I've had people who have been uh, weekly massage recipients. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I have a lot of patients who come and see me once a month or so, Um uh, quite a number of patients book their massage for the year at the end of the previous year. Mm. Um, so they'll book out um, the same time 
uh, every four weeks, 12 months in advance. Wow. Um, uh, and I've there are uh, probably a dozen or so people that I've been treating for about 20 years on that basis. Mm. Um, a number of people that I see um, on a fortnightly basis that I've seen for a few years. Um, I encourage people to have a massage once a month. There you all go. people. All your listeners, have a massage once a month. Yeah, um, sounds it's, like great It's only going to be good for you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think if everybody did that, uh, we'd probably have a lot lower uh, incidence of um, uh, back injuries and those sorts of things in the workplace. Do you think you can, f- well, help most people? Or is... Yeah. Ha- yeah? Yeah. I, I had an encounter with a osteo once and she... Um, she said, I can't do anything for you and you need to go and see this sports doctor, which ended up leading to a cortisone injection in my hip, for example. There, I mean, it, I, I'm not going to be able to help everybody with every condition. Right? Yeah. There are some things that massage but you, but is just But you can recognize for. that you can't and then you'd refer them to somebody yeah, else. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there have been not a huge number, but... Um, uh, you know, a reasonable number of people over the years who I always spend a bit of time on the initial consultation, mm. sorting out a medical history with somebody, finding out exactly what it is that they're looking for. Right. And there have been a number of people who I've said, look, you know, I can give you a massage today, mm-hmm. but I want you to have the understanding that I'm really not going to be able to help with the condition that you've come to see me for. Right. I really think you need to go and see somebody from a different sort of field because you know um like i said i'm happy to give you a massage today Mm. um but um i don't think i'm going to be able to um help you with this particular condition if you go and see somebody else they're more likely to be able to help you and here's why um and you know obviously i'm not going to charge somebody if that if that's the situation and they don't want to take the massage so yeah what um what would be your dream job? What would you do if you um, weren't doing what you're doing right now? Um, I'd travel the world and not tell anybody about it. People sort of say I'm a, uh, a fairly well-storied traveller and I've been lucky enough to do quite a lot of overseas travel. Mm. And people said, oh, you should be a travel writer or a blogger. I said, yeah, that'd be great. If only I could be bothered writing or blogging about it. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I just spend most of my time when I'm traveling having a great time and and people say, oh, you've got to post to Facebook all of the things that you do every day. I'm too busy doing the things to post about them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, people say, oh, I didn't see much of your trip. Said, yeah, well, I've got heaps of photos. <laughs> it's I just all didn't up post up. them. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you all the stories about them. <laughs> and um, have you had a worse day on the job? That's hard. Um, I think probably the okay. That uh, there was one day that I did um, back when I was seeing seven patients a day, Monday to Friday, and four on a Saturday. Um, I don't know why I did it this way, but I had my day organised so I'd see four patients in the afternoon. Mm. And there was one day where I just happened to have my four most physical patients, bang, 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 one after the other. Most physical being their big, big, big people, big guys. muscular, muscular um, dudes. There was one of them, um, I used to joke that um, I would wedge myself between the ceiling and his back and just push. <laughs> he was a, um, a former boxer. Right. Um, and and that's you know, where he, technique comes in yeah technique yeah. comes into it but you know um, 
uh, I'd be you know leaning as hard through my thumbs as I possibly could um, to uh, to work into the areas that he mm. wanted me to work into. Um, and he's asking if you've started the massage. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, and so I had those four guys uh, one after the other, and I just thought, I'm absolutely beat, and I don't yeah, want to be bet. doing this, you know, day after day after day. Yeah. Um, but probably the hardest days are um, uh, when you're hearing people who've been having a really hard time. Um, you know, I'll, I'll never forget hearing that. Um, uh, I mean, he'd been going down for quite a while, but um, uh, when one of my patient's um, children died from cancer, you know, it's, wow. it's, it was a uh, slow decline um, uh, and things had just been getting worse and worse and worse. And, and you know, I mean, I suppose, it, as in those situations, it tends to be that there's some sort of a relief when somebody actually mm. has an end to that suffering. But on the same token, you know, it's just emotionally devastating for somebody to have lost their son. It's in that still fashion. an end, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's that's probably the hardest thing for me. There's nothing really in terms of what I do other than, as I said, if I get the four biggest, beefiest guys that I've got. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, basically what I do is mostly pretty easy. Most people are uh, happier when they walk out than they are when they walk yeah, in. So, for sure. You know, <laughs> it's not a bad, it's not a bad job in that regard. <laughs> and, um, you know, going back to the whole spiritual, spiritual aspect of the job, um, I think what what I took, took away from what you said earlier is your ability to um, communicate and connect with people is a big part of this whole spiritual thing. Like you mentioned negative people that come in and it's important not to pick up on their negativity yeah. and just kind of turn around and help them have a good day. If yeah, and I guess that, that's probably the other aspect of a really hard day is because some people just don't want to have that uh, positivity in their life for, mm. for whatever reason. And, you, you know, you can't, you can't define it. You can't necessarily pin it down, but some people just don't. And... For me, being somebody who, as I said earlier, tends to look for the positive aspects of life, um, when somebody just point blank keeps pushing back against that, mm. that's really hard for me. And I will admit to having sacked some patients over the years because uh, you know that's I just don't find that I'm I don't feel like I'm being very helpful to them, right. and I I don't want to have that negativity in my life. I don't think I've ever heard that terminology before sacking, Sack, sacking a patient yeah. oh, and look, it, it a, makes a great story yeah. about uh, a guy I can't think of his last name he was a dentist in, in Brisbane uh-huh. um, Patty somebody um, uh, and uh, I had a guy who was working for me told me the story that um, uh, he wanted to change the way that he was doing things and so he sacked all of his patients um, and then he invited some patients back and for any new patients that were coming in they had to agree basically to a set of rules because he was sick of having to deal with people whose teeth were dreadful because mm. they wouldn't do anything to maintain them. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I don't know exactly what the situation was, but, you know, I would assume it had to do with, you know, having a, a professional clean every now and then, mm. um, doing all your flossing and those sorts of things. Um, uh, and, yeah, so he, he sacked his entire uh, patient load and then invited them back in one by one. Well, I'd um, I'd appreciate it if you didn't sack me. <laughs> just just throwing that out there. <laughs> Have you got um any advice for a twenty year old self? 
and philosophy my 20 year old self uh, keep a broad perspective on your life um, believe in yourself and don't listen to the restrictions that other people put on you mm. oh. yeah I think that's uh, that's something not just for myself but for everybody you know it's uh, it's very easy to um, to take advice from all comers mm. uh, and you have to choose from whom you take advice because not everybody's qualified to give you advice or knows you well enough to give you advice and some people will give you advice that's better suited to them than it is to you mm. so you know be be self-confident um, and be aware of what's going on around you and, and choose your own path very good yet again good advice <laughs> alright Andy we might wrap it up there mate great Thank you so much for coming by. Thank you for inviting me, John. It's been great. <laughs> and um, I'll put some whatever links you give me up on the podcast page if people want to get in touch with you and Terrific. get an awesome massage. Thank you. And um, yeah, thanks again, mate. All right. Cheers, mate. All of the music on this podcast is written, recorded, performed and produced by yours truly. If you like what you hear, you can find most tracks of my SoundCloud at varying degrees of production. Details in the podcast info. If you're a singer and interested in providing some vocals for any of the tracks without vocals, hit me up, and who knows, you may feature on the podcast. Also, if you've got any suggestions or requests for a career which you would like me to cover, drop me a line, either on the Working Class Instagram or Facebook page. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any episodes. Take care and stay motivated. A big thanks goes out to Andy Hall for today's episode. Today's track is called The Guy Who Sticks to Stickers on the Apples at the Supermarket. Kind of a shout out to Andy's fruit picking days. Enjoy. <laughs>